Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children, are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. As Steve said, we're looking at, at Romans chapter 8 today. Uh, I think Romans is a wonderful book of the Bible, but Romans 8 is, if I had to go to a desert island with a chapter of the Bible, this is probably it, uh, an extraordinary uh, part of God's Word that, that makes sense of so many different issues. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word, and we pray that uh, obscure outlines won't distract us from what you say to us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll strengthen and encourage us as we think about what it means to serve you faithfully in this world. Amen. Romans 8 is, it, it takes a different trajectory after the first seven chapters. And the most obvious change that occurs is that having mentioned the Holy Spirit maybe once or twice for seven chapters, suddenly you get to chapter 8 of Romans and there are about 30 mentions of the Holy Spirit. That, that even for dummies like us, that's a signal something is going on here that's a real focus when it comes to this passage. And it explores different ways in which the work of the Spirit operates. So when you get to chapter 8, verse 14, right in the centre of the passage we're looking at today, it says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now that, that's interesting, but it's also quite threatening. You see, because if you're not led by the Spirit of God, you're not a child of God. If you're not led by the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. So let me start off with the pointy threatening question, are you led by the Spirit of God? And how would you know if that was the case? What's the indicator that you're led by the Spirit? What does that look like? I uh, I often talk to people who um, have different ideas about the way in which the spirit uh, functions in their lives uh, from all sorts of different directions. And often people talk about the way in which the Holy Spirit helps them to make decisions. You know, young people, it's who to marry. Uh, uh, for older people, it can be, you know, what, what colour to paint the kitchen. Uh, you know, there can be all sorts of different questions that people ask in terms of how God leads and guides. Am I booming a bit too much for you? No, that's okay. Good. All right. uh, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I have some friends who I think it feels to me like they have this 1,000-watt sort of you know, experience of God's Spirit leading them, and I feel like I've got a 25-watt experience at points because they've often got this, this dialogue constantly happening between themselves and God throughout the day, and that's the way in which they understand the Spirit of God leading. Now, let me so I'm not diminishing that. I'm not suggesting that God cannot lead you in that sort of way or speak to you in a other-than-the-Bible sort of way. However, when we come to Romans chapter 8, that's not what it's talking about. When it talks about being led by the Spirit, 
It's not talking about an issue to do with guidance. What I want to do is explore it with you and try and work out what this passage is saying it means to be led by the Spirit of God. So it'd be great to have your Bibles open in front of you. You ought to check what I'm saying, and if you disagree or it's wrong, you ought to throw me out uh, at the end of the service, that sort of thing. On the outline, depending on which one you've got, we're up to point number four or point number one. All right. So the Spirit of God leads us into debt, into debt. Uh, I grew up in a family where debt was a bad, it was a, you know, a swear word, really, and my parents grew up in the Depression. My father was a bank manager. Debt was bad. Saving was good. Uh, and that, that was generally the memo that we got issued with. And yet you know that debt is a huge issue in Australia. Uh, the average Australian, when it comes to credit card debt, is running at somewhere like uh, $15,000 uh, loaded up on their credit card at enormous interest. And it's quite a crippling sort of factor. Uh, debt, in lots of ways can be bad. But notice here in verse 12, we're told that the Spirit of God leads us into debt. The Spirit leads us into debt. Now look at it with me, verse 12. Therefore, um, brothers, sisters, we have an obligation. Now that word obligation is actually the, in the original language, it's a word for debt. It's saying, therefore, brothers, we have a debt. Now, what sort, of, what sort of debt is being talked about here? If, uh, if I was at a supermarket going through, run all my things through the, uh, you know, the counter and given the indication at the end of that, that by the checkout person that I owed $184.63 and I went to pull out my wallet and discovered my wallet wasn't there, I'd be feeling pretty bad. But let's say the person behind me on the checkout, you know, the line, said, it's okay, I'll pay for your groceries and you can pay me back later, okay? I would feel indebted to that person and keen to pay them back as soon as I could. Verse 13 here says we are indebted to God. But in what way? Can I say it's, it's not to pay back God in some way for our sin. And if you've been working through the book of Romans, you know this is a huge issue, our sin that blocks our relationship with God. But it's not to pay back for our debt because we, we absolutely can't do that. Jesus did it for us. It's so dumb to think we can pay the same debt twice. Uh, it's just a, a strange sort of a concept. Verse 13, here's the debt we owe. To put to death the misdeeds of the body. That is, to turn away from sin uh, or anything that clashes with the relationship with God. Now, if you've been working through this book of Romans, you know as you think about that idea of sin, not treating God properly, you see the manifestations of it back in chapter 1. Uh, things like greed or gossip or envy or jealousy or sexual immorality. You see, so when it's talking about being led by the Spirit, it's not talking about decision-making, you know, financial decisions or what career to take or where to live or something like that. It's, it's talking about holiness, aiming to live to please God, getting rid of sin. So if you're 
led by the Spirit of God, if you're a child of God, then you'll be putting to death sin in your life. Okay, that's what it means. Now, having said that, if you have any sensitivity at all as a follower of Jesus, if that's the thing you'd call yourself today, a follower of Jesus, disciple, then there'll be questions going through your head. You'll be thinking, okay, but I'm very aware of sin in my own life, either generally or specifically. Uh, There may be issues that you're wrestling with when it comes to your uh, preoccupation with money or or maybe there's people here who are battling with uh, internet porn or possibly you have a real problem with anger that just flares up and you don't have control over that. And therefore you might be thinking, well, I, I can't be led by the Spirit of God if I've still got that sin operating my life. Therefore, maybe I'm not a Christian at all. I say I often talk to followers of Jesus who have that sort of question. But can I say, if, if you have a struggle with sin, if the battle is going on, that actually is a sign that you have the Spirit of God working in you. See, where there's no battle, uh, where there's no contest, that's because the Spirit of God is not operating. Uh, but if you go back to Romans chapter 7, you see that the, the work of the Spirit actually means there's a, there's a struggle that's happening that you're aware of. It's actually a good sign if you're battling with sin, and you will be battling with sin this side of heaven. The second thing about it is, um, I think for believers, as we live in this world, often we have a negative view of what it means to be led by the Spirit or or holiness. Notice what it says here, uh, that sin is actually death. Verse 13, we're to put to death the misdeeds and then we'll live. You see, sin is death and holiness, living for God, is life. But that's actually the opposite of the way our world thinks about it, isn't it? It's the actual reverse. Often the world portrays sin as being fun, you know, something to be enjoyed. Joy, drunkenness is, is a laugh. Uh, recreational sex is terrific. Uh, money is the key to freedom and life. And holiness, the idea of living for God is boring. That is, Christianity is this sort of life of bread and water, and then when you get to heaven, it's like a five-star gourmet meal, you know. But right now, you just go with that, then in due course, it will be terrific. Now, can I say that's a really strange view of God, a really odd and perverted view of God, to think that God, his main goal is to make sure we have a boring existence, Can I say sin destroys? There is nothing casual about casual sex. Uh, it's demeaning to think that our value is determined by what we own. Isn't that the wrong way around? You know, I I am the contents of my safety deposit box. How stupid is that? You know, to actually think that human beings who are created in the very image of God are somehow measured by what they own. 
but what they're meant to actually exercise authority over. That controls their sense of self-identity and worth. It's just not the way it works. Friends, to be led by the Spirit, it is life. It is life. It is joy. It is fullness. It is freedom. Now, are you convinced about that? If you are, and if you're flirting with sin, then you will run a mile because you know it is death and destruction. It's not what God intends. Can I also say that as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are aware of brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught up in sin, we will step in to work it out with them. We, we, do you know how in Australia there's sort of that distance we have in relationships? You know, it's not my place to interfere with someone else's life. <laughs> Can I say it's not Christian? See, if, you're, if you love people, you don't want them to destroy themselves. And therefore, you will step in. Uh, you will get alongside them, not in a, uh, a beat them about the head with a baseball bat sort of way, because you are, like them, sinners who have been redeemed by Jesus. So therefore, in humility, you step in and you graciously assist them when you know that's going on. And that's part of the love that we demonstrate for one another. Spirit of God leads us into debt. But then we move on and we're told that the Spirit of God also leads us into sonship, particularly verses 14 through 16. So in this passage, on the one hand, we have um, slavery and fear. On the other hand, we have sonship and intimacy. So if you're thinking about the sequence of ideas, if you have no spirit, don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, you're a slave to sin, and there is fear of judgment. Right? That's the sort of line that operates. But if you had the Spirit of God, you're a child of God, you will put to death sin, and you have an intim intimate relationship with God and confidence. Those are the ideas that are grouped together here. If you're a child of God, you have no fear. No fear. No fear of what? Uh, when I was about six years old, I was really into soccer. And... I, there were two trees at the front of our yard that I used to use as goalposts to kick my soccer ball through, right? And I just practiced that for a lot of time. Because the thing I haven't told you is that those two trees also framed this big plate glass window at the front of our house, which was the front bedroom window of my parents uh, uh, where they slept. And one day I kicked too high, the ball went straight through that plate glass window, okay? And I just saw it, froze, and then ran around the corner of the house and hid, right? Now, I knew my father loved me, right? But I had this vision, and here's my soccer ball with my name on it, sitting on their bed in the midst of shattered glass, right? I knew my father loved me, but I just thought he was going to kill me, you know? <laughs> and so I just hid around the corner behind a tree. Look at what it says, verse 15. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Now, why, why don't you have any fear? Is it because um, you're suddenly living a... 
a good enough life that God is pleased with you because you're putting sin to one side? No. So you will continue to sin this side of heaven. So if your fear is tied up with not sinning, you will continue to be scared. You'll have fear of God. It's particularly the fact that we have no fear of punishment. That's what's going on here in this passage. Back in verse 3 of chapter 8, we're told that God sent his own son to be the sin offering and that he was condemned for our sin. Now, some of you know I used to practice law, and one of the things that law is that you can't charge and punish someone twice for the same crime. You know, the double jeopardy sort of idea. Jesus has been punished for our sins. Therefore, for those who are children of the Heavenly Father, we cannot be punished for those sins. Do you understand how liberating that is? Jesus is the substitute for us, and that takes all the fear out of the idea of judgment or the consequences for our sin. If you fear uh, the consequences of your sin and you call yourself a believer, it's because you actually aren't trusting that Jesus has done that for you. And you need to be reminded it's not what you do, it is what God has done for you in his son. Second thing is, though, we're told we're adopted. Notice verse 15, it talks about uh, the spirit of sonship, or some of you may have in your translations a spirit of adoption. Adoption's an interesting idea here. Uh, rather than to pick up on the idea of being a natural child in a relationship, but an adopted child. I, I once had an old Toyota Corona that I'd had for a number of years and I just ran it into the ground until I needed to get another car and decided to sell it. But it was in bad shape. You know. But it did have air conditioning. So I put it on, advertised it for a really cheap price and this guy arrived at my place at the crack of dawn to buy my car. And he said, without seeing my car, he said... I will pay you the price you're asking for it. And I said, do you want to see it first? No. I'm just, I said, I think I should show it to you first. Right? So I went and showed it to him. I lifted up the bonnet. I said, you know where the, the oil cap is supposed to go in your car where you put the oil in? That was missing. I'd, sometime I'd put oil in and then couldn't find the cap. So this is just hole going into the engine, you know, which you know is not good for a car. Uh, and then he said, no problem, I'll still pay the... And, I said, let me show you the bumper bar. I was driving along one day and the bumper bar fell off and I ran over the top of it. You know, and I pushed it back on. But at any stage, if you brake suddenly, it could just pop off again. You know? And I just kept going through fault after fault after fault. And he thought I was trying to raise the price on him. I don't know why he thought that. But he kept on saying, I'll pay you more, I'll pay you more. And I said, no, 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 I just want you to know what you're buying. You know, so you'll, you'll act. And he bought it and off he went. I couldn't dissuade him from... Uh, buying my car, despite all the faults. Now, you might say, why am I telling you a silly story? Right? It's because I was trying to outline to him the problems associated with it. When kids are born into your family, if you're a parent, so you have them by natural birth, you're stuck with them. Okay? doesn't matter what you do, you just sort of, you're stuck with them for the rest of their lives. You get no choice, they just sort of turn up and they're yours. Now, notice how different that is 
from adoption? Because adoption is about choice. Right? Natural children, no choice. Adoption, every choice. God adopts his children. That is, he has a full disclosure statement about what we're like when he brings us into his family. He knows your faults. He knows your sin. He knows exactly what you're like. And yet in his kindness and his mercy and grace, he brings you in as one of his own. Now, that's extraordinary security if you're a child of the Heavenly Father. Adoption. And then, not itinerary, but intimacy. Uh, we have this relationship with God, which is intimate. Uh, one of the things about my uh, appointment as a senior minister at Trinity is that we've had this long-standing relationship with the governor of the state. So you may know that the main church building we have in town is a couple of hundred metres up from Government House. And there's always been that sort of connection there. And from time to time, the senior minister has had a stronger or less strong connection with the governor. When Eric Neal was the governor of the state, uh, he used to come fairly regularly to the church down on North Terrace and would Im invite us up to Government House for various, various big events. On one occasion, he and Lady Neal invited just Sue and I to come for this sort of around-the-kitchen-table type meal at Government House. Right? And uh, so we went up there, and you'd think, oh, it was just the four of us and three servants, you know, serving the food. That was basically it. So sort of friendly around the kitchen table, except we got an invitation telling us what we should wear and uh, the protocols associated with coming to Government House around the kitchen table with the three servants serving all our food, you know. So it was that funny sort of experience. And so sitting around the table, and I didn't say, Eric, Eric, my man, how are you going? I still called him Sir Eric, you know, Sir Eric, please pass the peas. You know, it was that sort of, you know, sort of friendly but formal sort of situation. It was strange like that. God's spirit brings us into an intimate relationship with God, which is quite extraordinary. So for us, if we're followers of God, his disciples, it is not your excellency, God. That's not the way it works. It's not Sir God. Verse 15. You received the spirit of adoption, and by him, that is by the spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, it is really hard to get a 21st century equivalent of Abba, Father. Uh, some some people have said, you know, dear dad, daddy, dearest father. And, you know, if I call my, my dad dearest father, right, this would not have flown. Uh, yeah, it depends. So it, it varies for each one of us as to what you think captures that idea of intimacy. Maybe the best way to explain it is to refer you to another spot where it's used. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he is facing the cross, his death, everything that goes with that. And while he's in the garden, at this point of, of extraordinary crisis, he calls out to his heavenly father, 
And he cries out, Abba, Father. The one who loves you, the one who is trustworthy, the one you can cry out to in your moment of deepest need, the one in whom you have confidence because you know of his deep and profound love for you. That is the one that we are brought into relationship with by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I've been in pastoral ministry like this for less time than some who are here. Uh, so it's, you know, it's over 25 years now. And I've been struck time and time again by the extraordinary powerful influence that parents have, and particularly fathers, when it comes to their children. I read a study just the other day that indicated that for kids growing up in a Christian family, statistically, uh, the strongest indicator of correlation between those kids adopting the faith of their parents is that their father is engaged in the spiritual life of the family. This is a statistical study of the most outstanding key factor in that process. Fathers who actually were open about their faith with their children, fathers who were open about the struggles they had in terms of the faith with their children. It's not that mothers weren't significant, but the correlation between kids who pressed on in the faith and didn't was most tied to that factor on a statistical basis. And it doesn't surprise me in some ways. I read a book maybe seven or eight years ago called Affluenza. It was a study about uh, the way in which Australians thought about materialism and money. Not a Christian book, just a secular book observing what went on. And there was one story that just caught my attention in this book. It was of a businessman from Sydney uh, who died suddenly, fairly young, of a heart attack, uh, leaving a wife and a son who was in his 20s. When they were cleaning up the estate, uh, the son came across his father's diaries. Uh, the father was generally a very busy and in many ways absent father, all tied up uh, with making money and establishing his career. So a great provider, but not really engaged. But this son, now in his 20s, could remember a time when he was in upper high school, when his father took a day off work and took him out sailing on Sydney Harbour for the whole day. And the son could remember this day as that magical day with his, his dad. And so he, he went to the diary and found the day when uh, he and his father had been off sailing, and he looked it up, and there was only one sentence that had been written down for that day. This was it. Complete waste of day. Um, I do not know what your relationship with your human father was or is. I can't tell you. I mean... But this, I know, this father, he will never 
let you down. He will never, ever absent himself. He is the one who is Abba Father. He's the one you cry out to. The last point, number three or number six, just depending on which outline you've got, is the Spirit leads us into our inheritance. Right? So leads us into debt, leads us into our intimate relationship with God, our, our sonship, our daughtership, if, if you like. And finally, the Spirit leads us into our inheritance, verse 17. If we're children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Uh, what are we inheriting? Well, verse 17, you pick it up towards the end there. That is glory, what is to come. There's a, um, there's a future dimension. Uh, the heavenly benefits are being spilt out. We're, we're secure now, but what do we inherit? Well, we inherit everything that Jesus gets. I want you to think for a moment about uh, the person in this room. Depending, you may not know many people in this room, but if you do know a few people, the person in this room that you think God probably loves the most, right? Who do you think God would love the most in this room? Now, I know you're probably thinking me because I'm a minister and all that sort of thing, right? But you may think humility is an important quality as well for God to love them, so you may think of somebody else, right? Who, who do you think God loves the most? Now I want you to imagine for a moment that Jesus himself uh, came among us and was sitting, physically sitting in one of these seats in this auditorium. Okay. Who does God love the most now? Who does God love the most now? If you are a child of the Heavenly Father he would not be able to distinguish in terms of his love for you and Jesus. Uh, which is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Because what we're being told is that we are co-inheritors with Jesus of everything that he has won for us. What an extraordinary status. All the, all the relationship, all the blessings of being one with God. And what the Spirit does is he assures us that our position and our status has been secured for all eternity alongside the Lord Jesus himself with the Heavenly Father. So the question I started with was, are you led by the Spirit of God? Are you led by the Spirit of God. And where, where does this Spirit lead us? Now you'll have picked up from this passage, it's got nothing to do with being led into a job or a house or a relationship or an investment or some other direction. This passage is not about that. It's about something much richer and better and fuller and more complete. It's about being led into holiness that is a life which is complete because it's all to do with serving your Heavenly Father. It's about intimacy in relationship with God because he has brought you in as a beloved member 
of his family. No fear. Not before God. Only security and confidence. It's about assurance. Because God himself, through the Lord Jesus, has assured our place with God for all eternity. When uh, I'd become a Christian, I think I was been a believer for about three years, and soon I had a friend. I'll call her, her Carol. It wasn't her real name. But I remember sitting down and we were uh, reading through the Bible, praying one night, and uh, because of, I think, a whole lot of family background issues, Carol was quite a, uh, an on-edge sort of person. And I remember one day asking her how she felt God would look at her when she fronted up to heaven. What, what, just to imagine what the expression on God's face would be like when she turned up. And I remember her saying, he will be angry with me. And, and I had this image of Carol sitting in the naughty corner for the rest of her life, you know, for the rest of eternity. That was her picture of her relationship with God. Friends, if you have the spirit that casts away fear, you know your family and you know you are loved because the spirit leads you into the fullness of that relationship. So, led by the Spirit of God, that, that's where the Spirit will lead you. And it's a wonderful thing. So I'm going to pray that uh, for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we'll know that experience in increasing measure. Uh, but if, can I also say that if you're not in a situation where you've worked it out yet, like you might be still stuck in the first question, I'm not sure if I have the Spirit of God, then I'd love to talk to you too. Uh, or you might talk to someone who you came along with today or someone you know, because that's a really important question to work out the answer to, to know that you have that secure and confident relationship with God because of what he has done for you in Jesus. Spirit, the Spirit of God, leads us into the fullness of our relationship with God. Let me pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, great love and mercy towards us in your Son. Uh, Father, we ask that... Uh, we'll, your spirit will keep being at work in us, changing, transforming, uh, shaping our minds, uh, assuring us of the relationship we have with you because of Jesus' death for us, uh, the way in which that secures our intimacy with you, the Abba Father relationship, the assurance we have that in the future we don't come under judgment, we inherit alongside the Lord Jesus all that you've promised to him. Uh, Father, we, uh, we pray that we'll know these things in increasing measure and that it will profoundly shape our lives as we seek to live them for your glory and honour. Uh, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.